Thank you so much. Hey, hey, Tony, quit, stop it. Come here. Come up, no, come up here for a second. Yep, everyone. I think that we're exactly alike. Look at it. Like, actually, people have been asking us all weekend if we're brothers. <laughs> and, you know, actually, uh, where Tony and I are just alike, I, we have actually a lot of things in common. We both, we're, we're always 10 minutes late, and we both lose our keys, and we both have wives that are smarter than us. I think that's, that's many things. This man's amazing, and he's a gift to your church. <laughs> uh, I actually met Tony, uh, gosh, it was almost six years ago now. I was just about to start, it's five and a half years ago. I was just a, a month away from starting uh, Door of Hope. And Tony and I have a mutual friend, um, uh, a great guy by the name of Jim uh, in Portland, uh, who's in the same uh, industry as Tony. And Jim had given Tony my first, uh, my first worship album uh, from 2002 uh, in a time when Tony's uh, dad was, uh, was sick. And, uh, and that uh, record ministered to him. So he had uh, asked Jim if I could come and have dinner with them and, and serenade them. And I did. And we just hit it off. Kind of kindred spirits. In fact, the other night, I'm, I'm paying for that. We stayed up till 3 in the morning uh, visiting. And uh, it's just cool. You know, I, I, I will say, following Jesus has, has brought the most interesting people into my life. I mean, just the, the things, I mean, Tony and I would never have met, ever, ever, <laughs> if it were not for having one supreme thing in common, and that's a love for Jesus and his mission. So, um, well, I'm excited to be here today. I, uh, my name is Josh White. I'm the pastor of Door of Hope uh, in uh, Portland, Oregon, not Portland, Maine. I'm sure that's a wonderful, vibrant city, but by the fact that nobody ever hears anything about it ever, uh, tells me that Portland, Oregon's cooler. So we will begin by me uh, up front saying that I sometimes have Tourette's and I apologize. Um, I am uh, a man who came to faith at 27 years old. I was involved in the music scene in Seattle, um, was a very... Um, you know, just a, a selfish, self-centered, grew up in a broken family, wasted my education on drugs and the pursuit of, of fame. Uh, and, you know, <laughs> I lived in Seattle. I signed to Mercury Records in, in 1996. And, um, and there was a, a subsidiary label that I was signed to in Portland, Oregon. And in going to Portland uh, in May of 96, I was playing my first showcase for my label at this famous punk rock club called the Satyricon, and, and uh, in waltzes this gorgeous older woman in a summer dress, uh, and I walked over to her, not dressed like anyone that she had known for, she was used to tall, handsome GQ businessmen, and here I am at 22, and she was at 28, and I've got vinyl pants on and a woman's sparkly shirt and burgundy lipstick and raccoon eyeliner. And I look like Ziggy Stardust, and if you don't know who he is, you should know. Uh, and, uh, and, and I just walked up to her and I said, you are the most beautiful woman I have ever seen in my life. I'd never tried that before. It's weird, it works. Guys, it works. <laughs> she was, that was it. It was game over. She's like, who needs GQ when I can have no words, no words. <laughs> And then the Lord that night gave her special goggles that hid my appearance for the next 
several years until I learned what it meant to be a man, which is around 31. Uh, but I came, my wife and I, Darcy, uh, fell in love actually that weekend. Um, we got married in 97, and we weren't believers. We were crazy and out of control. She was like a little new age earth goddess, and I was a little Ziggy Stardust, androgynous spaceman, and, and yet we fell in love. And two years after our marriage, uh, something radical happened. Um, I met Jesus, and I fell and I'm an intense personality, and so all my intensity went from music to Christ, and that revolutionized my life, really bummed my wife out for about two years, and then she came to meet Jesus as well, and we found ourselves in ministry, uh, me, two years after I'd become a believer in her six months, and so uh, and it's, been a, it's been a journey. So the Lord has brought a circle, we, I, I uh, became a worship leader, ended up doing music full-time, toured around the world in 2003 and 2004, uh, realized that I didn't want to be on tour, wanted to actually be connected with a church community body, that the music that I was writing, I wanted to be birthed out of what God was doing in a particular place with a particular people. I landed at a church in California for two years, but our heart was to come back to Portland where we met, and God has put us right in the center uh, of where uh, my wife and I met. Uh, 18 years ago, and uh, which is the bohemian capital of the United States. It really is the weirdest place in the world. Uh, and we just got subjected to our annual naked bicycle ride that loves to, all 5,000 of them, ride right by my house. And I had to make my daughter go inside, who's eight. Uh, so Portland, you know, there's a sticker that says, keep Portland weird. I just say, it's just, you know what, it's just immature. And if that's what defines cool, then we are extremely cool because we're extremely immature. So uh, Jesus has done a radical work. God, Portland is also the great, uh, is the church planting graveyard. Uh, 19 out of every 20 church plants fail. And it is a, a hot spot for church plants. And sadly, most of them uh, go home with their tails between their legs because it is such a unique post-Christian culture. Our church uh, has due to God just choosing to use the foolish things to confound the wise, uh, has drawn um, over the last five years um, about 1,500 adults now, mainly between the ages of 20 and 30. And so, you know, we often get called the hipster church, but I respond to that. If we weren't reaching hipsters, we would not be reaching Portland. Uh, most of our growth has been through new conversions. And What's fascinating is about five out of every 10 people that accept Christ in, in our church context have never heard the gospel before in their entire lives. That's how post-Christian this city is. Um, and, but with that comes a real longing and a hunger for something solid to build life upon. So with that, uh, just to give you a little context where I come from, uh, you know, my heart, uh, what I'm going to share with you today is, is uh, the heartbeat of, of what drives me. Uh, as a follower of Jesus, and it is, uh, it, it is a, a robust understanding and a continual filling out of the word grace. Now, for many of us, uh, we utilize words. I remember when I became a believer back in, what was it, 1998 or 99, that I, I would hear these Christian phrases that I was unfamiliar with. And so, you know, it, go to church and someone would say, blessings, brother. And I'd be like, what? does that mean like hello or uh, like 
I hope all is well with you. I, I'm not, I don't know, and my name's Josh. Why'd you call me brother? I'm not your brother. Um, and so so there just was like a huge disconnect for me because there was just, we have a language. You, you do recognize that we do have a secret language. Uh, and especially in a post-Christian city, uh, our language is really weird uh, to, to non-Christians. But what's awesome is because I come from a city that doesn't really have, use, utilize these words, uh, there's a clean slate. But if you've grown up as a Christian in Detroit, being a part of the Midwest, and there's a strong, there's a strong tradition in touring. You know, I spent a lot of time in the Midwest and South, and most people have some sort of Christian background. At least, at least they've been in contact with it. Whether it's actually changed your life, that's a whole other conversation. But you, you're familiar with the vocabulary, and that vocabulary becomes so, uh, so common. Um, that it loses its depth of meaning. And, and honestly, when we take a look at the words that we use as Christians, and we're really honest with ourselves, we have to ask, do I actually know what it means? So you think about the word grace. If I was to ask one of you in this room to define grace for me, uh, would you feel comfortable doing that? Let's actually give it a try. Oh, I'm just joking. I would not to do that to you. Like, oh my, he is so intense. Uh, no. <laughs> Think about grace. You know, when I became a believer, I was given this quippy little, this quippy little phrase by a pastor. Who said, "Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense." And I'm like, "Did you just give me a definition by using the first letter of the word grace?" If that actually worked, why doesn't Webster's Dictionary do that with every word? Because it doesn't actually really work. Um, it's, it's clever, and it speaks to some aspects of what grace is. But grace means so much more than that. And honestly, it means so much more by beginning to recognize, first and foremost, that it's actually summed up in one word. One word. It's summed up in the word Emmanuel. Emmanuel is a word that is given to our Savior, which literally means God with us. Three words, which even becomes more significant for us today. Because you see, if we cannot define the language by which we use, how then will it actually build up a robust understanding of what it means to live for Jesus and to be a conduit for his mission on earth? And you see, I have been deeply troubled by the fact that so many Christians I meet have written over their heads as the, the great English preacher Alan Redpath once said, save soul and wasted life. And the reason I think that we can waste our lives as followers of Jesus is because we never come to a right understanding of what God actually thinks about us. Because we have a wrong understanding when it comes to what we think about God. Grace is essential to living victoriously in Christ. Now you have it as your church name. You even have it as your coffee shop, Grace Cafe. And that's, that's great, because I come from Portland and we're a coffee town, but that, I don't think that does the word justice, honestly. And so we come to this place where we're like, okay, is this word so familiar that I, I don't understand? Because if we don't understand grace, we will live failed lives as followers of Jesus. I want to explain to you what these three words, God with us, actually means. Let me just give you a quick, a quick definition. I would say that grace refers to a God 
who exists neither next to us nor merely above us, but instead he exists with us and for us. I would say that it refers to a God who doesn't sweep our needs, concerns, our lacks, our wants, our problems under the rug, but he literally, he takes them up and he makes them his own and he answers and solves them better than we can know or desire. It means that there is literally no tear too small for God to collect. It means that God cares, is concerned, not just about humanity as a whole, but about each one of you as if you are the only ones to love. You see, when we say God with us, we mean that God has literally chosen to identify himself so fully with his creation that the unchanging God became something that he was not before. And what was that? He became a, not a trick question, he became a man. He became one of us. The creator of the universe, the eternal God, literally entered into broken humanity. He came to us at our lowest point, our sin. And he identified himself with our brokenness that he might become the great mediator, the great high priest, our sympathetic high priest who understands our weaknesses, that he might draw us into a place of right understanding once again of what God actually thinks. Athanasius, in writing the Nicene Creed, which I think is the only perfect creed that the church has ever produced, is, is he says, it is for our sake that God became a man. And I could take it further. It is for our sake that he died as a man. And it is for our sake that God, through Jesus conquered death and rose from the dead as a man. And it is for our sake that Jesus, as a man, will reign in eternity forever. The profoundness of that has to begin to strike a nerve in us because the only thing that will compel the Christian life is love. And love for us comes out of a right understanding of grace. It comes to us without grace as a gift without reservations or conditions. It originates out of the depths of who God is in himself, and Jesus is its center. Another way that I think grace can be defined is it is simply God making us receptive for him and himself for us. Isn't that profound? So I want us to dig into this idea of what grace is because I believe that it will help us come to a much deeper understanding of what it means to follow Jesus. And there is a psalm uh, that I believe defines grace almost better than any other section of scripture in the Bible. And it is a well-known psalm. It's Psalm 139. And if you, can't, if you would turn with me in your Bible uh, to Psalm 139, if you have your Bibles. Um, if not, uh, um, I will read and you can, you can listen um, but what we're going to see uh, is that Psalm 139 is, is broken into what I would say are six sections. And the first three give us three facets of God's grace. And, this, and the second three uh, give us three responses to God's grace. 
Now, when we think about God's grace, the first thing that we need to know is found here in verses 1 through 6 of Psalm 139. And let me, let me read these verses. It says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high and I cannot attain it. Now, Theologians have done a great disservice to this psalm by reducing it to what we call the attributes of God. And they will say these first six verses have to do with God's omniscience. Now, how many of you ever use the word omniscience? Is that even helpful? Uh, and, you know, the only time I've ever even heard that word used outside of the Bible was in a, was in a, a pretentious... New Yorker review of one of my favorite authors, David Foster Wallace's giant, ridiculous book, Infinite Jest, and they referred to Wallace as omniscient in his knowledge base. And I'm like, well, first of all, you should never use that word, because nobody uses that word. And secondly, it's just not true, because it means he knows everything, and nobody knows everything. So theologians say, well, God does know everything, therefore he is omniscient. But does that help you? It doesn't help me. It makes me uncomfortable. Who likes anyone that knows everything? You see, that is not what the thrust of David's psalm is about. He's not trying to give us theological definitions that remain in the abstract and don't actually connect with real everyday life. What he is showing us is what intimacy with the living God looks like and how God defines himself can never be disconnected with what he feels and does for humanity. So it's not about his omniscience. These six verses tell us something profound about grace. They tell us this. Grace means, first of all, if you could put it up, Grace means I am known. You have it right there in that amazing puffy letter font. Grace means I am known. Like little clouds above you right now. Uh, we, we're like the most untech church on the planet. So I'm like not used to having this amazing benefit of like being able to point up to a big giant screen. And there it is, what I just said. It's magical. Uh, <laughs> people are like, door of hope so authentic. And I'm like, all you really mean by that is that we're lazy. Because <laughs> we're never prepared for anything. Oh, that makes it real. <laughs> uh, grace means I'm known. Look what he says. Lord, you've searched me. You've known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. He says something that's a little disturbing. There's this God who, who actually knows every detail, every facet, every decision, every thought before it even takes action. David says, I recognize this about you, God. You, you know my path. You know my path. Even before words on my tongue, behold, oh Lord, you know it all together. And you're acquainted with all, with all my ways. You hem me in behind him before. Look at this powerful picture of, of one who protects and understands, who is ultimately concerned. David understood the gospel before the gospel came because he understood the purpose 
of the scriptures and God's redemptive purposes for humanity, that God created us, that we might be in intimate fellowship with him as covenant partners ruling over his creation under his rule. And I love this. He says, he says, I, such knowledge, it's too wonderful me, for me. It's, it's high, I cannot attain it. He's unhinged by this knowledge. Because what David is telling us about God is what God wants us to know about God. And that is, in order to know someone, and when we talk about God, we're not talking about something. We're not talking about an impersonal force or even a personal force that is detached and disinterested from his creation because he is wholly other. No, he is both. There, there, is a, there, is, there is true that there is a wholly other aspect to God. But he is also eminent. It means that he is closer to you than you are to your own thoughts. In order to fully know anyone, what must we do? If I want to know Tony, I come to Detroit, which I, by the way, it's a really fascinating city and I thoroughly enjoyed myself. Uh, sitting with Tony, in order for me to truly know him, I mean, I've met him several times and our hearts are connected and, and he's awesome, but I didn't know him that well. I just thought he was cool and fun and like an energizer bunny, and I related to that. Um, but I wanted to get to know him, and he wanted to get to know me. And so in order for that exchange to occur, there had to be time invested, and we didn't have a lot of time. So what did we do? We almost stayed up all night. There was a giving of ourselves to one another to get to know the sharing of our lives. Tell me about your wife. Tell me about your kids. Tell me about your struggles. What's hard about leading a church? I mean, Tony would just ask me questions, and then I'd ask him about, about the church. I want to understand the, the, the audience I'm going to preach to. Tell me about Detroit. Give me its history. There was a, there was a giving of, of our minds to one another that we might know each other. And in, this is the thing. When it says... God, you have known me. What it's saying is that God has given himself to us that he might know us and that we might know him. God has chosen to limit himself. His sovereignty means that he's free to do what he wants. Let's not overcomplicate over sovereignty. If it means anything, it means that God is free to love sinners in their sin. And he's free to move into our lives and God knowledge is never for knowledge's sake. It is directly connected to his genuine interest in our existence and his desire to awaken and call us to faith in himself. God knows us, you guys. He knows you. Because he cares about you. Because he's crazy about you. Because on your worst stinking day, he's madly in love with you. He loves you. But for me, I immediately asked the question, well, if he knows me, how could he really know me? He's God. He's holy. He's holy other. He's, you know, doesn't it say that God, you know, that in him is light and there's no darkness at all? And isn't our lives, it, if it's not fully dark, it's at least mixture. And, and, and how can he know me when I'm gray and he's bright? How can he know me when I am sinful and broken and proud sometimes and weak other times and, and overly intense other times. How can he know me? I mean, 
you can't, how can I connect with a God who doesn't understand that? But you see, all we've got to do to, to answer that question quickly is that we come to the New Testament and we jump into a book that I think is one of the most profound books in the New Testament, uh, Hebrews chapter 4. Uh, and in Hebrews 4, there's this incredible emphasis on how Jesus is... God's final word, that God has done all these things in times past, he's spoken through the prophets, he's given us the scriptures, but in these last days, he has given us his final word. He has spoken to us literally in son. In other words, the father has actually nothing left to say because everything he wants to say is wrapped up in one word, which is one person, and that is Jesus. And it says in Hebrews 4, it says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. And so I often heard when I had become a new believer that Jesus, you know, he was like Superman. He, you know, well, he wasn't really tempted because he was God, you see. He was the God man. He was both 100% God. He was 100% man. And, you know, we would start getting into dangerous, potentially heretical territory if we were to say that Jesus, you know, was tempted like we're tempted. But let me just who in every respect has been tempted. Well, you can't say that. Well, the Bible says it, and that settles it. So what does that mean for us? He was without sin. Look at this. Explain this verse to me. 2 Corinthians. He who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. It's not saying that Jesus sinned. It's saying he did something even more intense than that. He became sin. He literally identified himself not just with the ideal of humanity. He identified himself with what makes humanity such a mess. Which make, the very thing that makes Detroit a mess. And the thing that makes Portland, Oregon a mess. It's called our sinfulness. Our rebellion against the sovereign rule of God. Our rejection of his great love and grace. This man said to me in the last gathering, I was telling, he goes, it's interesting what you say about Portland. Portland sounds like a really weird and wild city where people, you know, they call it the Peter Pan syndrome. Uh, and that is truly Portland. In fact, I'm wearing my green tights right now under these pants. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> that would be disturbing. I'm like, no, really. <laughs> uh, this, this, this young man came up to me and he said, I lived in Detroit my whole life. And he goes, he goes, I think Detroit needs an, the whole city needs an anger management class. And I'm like, that's really interesting. I, I wouldn't be able to gather that perspective from just being here for two days. But, you know, I'll take your word for it if you've lived here your whole life. Uh, and I, I think that this is the reality. Jesus came to identify not just with the good parts of us. He actually identified with what is broken in us that he might bring a solution to it. It's not saying that Jesus sinned, but what it is saying is that he actually entered into broken human flesh and he literally bent it back into righteousness to the Father. For he took our brokenness and without failing, he saw it through all the way to the end. Amen. And because of that, we, can't, we can say that not only does Jesus identify with our pain as well as with our victory, but he, we can't say, well, if sin is a huge part of what we are, how can he identify with that? Because he knows it, because he dealt with it. And therefore, we have a sympathetic high priest. God's knowledge of us 
proven through the work of the cross is both experimental and active, never abstract. Look at this. If grace means that I am known, what else does grace mean? Well, let's look at the second facet, verses 7 through 12. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for the darkness is as light with you. Once again, theologians have turned this into an abstract concept around around the doctrine of God and they call this God's omnipresence once again not a word that's extremely useful for us in fact that's really creepy if God isn't personal because that just turns him into a weird voyeur where he's just he's always watching you he's always watching you they're like well that doesn't make me comfortable I think it'd be creepy if anyone was always watching me but if God is concerned about if he loves me, if he created me for himself, what this passage tells us is something profound, not meant to disturb us, but meant to shake us to the core and remind us in an age that is marked by what I would call a peculiar American loneliness, if I could borrow from David Foster Wallace, what, what has been called by some a gut-level sadness, a deep, overriding despair and anxiety about the purpose and meaning of existence. In a city like Portland that is post-Christian, where now lives must derive their meaning from what can be accomplished in this short lifetime, because I don't know about you, but the last time I checked, the death rate seems to be one per person. And so we look at this culture that we are living in, and we're in a sea. Why are so many coming to Christ? Because people are desperate for something to build their lives on that gives greater significance than, the, than these false attempts to drive meaning from our, from our silly pursuits. And they are silly if they aren't connected to the divine. It's only Jesus that can, that can bring a robustness and, and fill to the things that we do. And you see, we live in a time where despair is becoming a norm. The average person that I, that I meet with at my church, and I try to meet with anyone who wants to meet with me, even with 1,500 people, I, I put a, a day aside a week that I just meet with anyone who emails. It takes a long time to get through them, but, but I want to know where people are coming from, and I want them to know, I want them to have the right to meet their pastor and know their pastor. I don't want to live in an ivory tower. I want to be available because that's how Jesus lived. Um, and, and, and what I've come to discover, and I've even had it happen to me, is that we live in an age of serious anxiety. Serious anxiety. We live in an age of desperate loneliness. I know for a fact there are people sitting in this room, probably many, who are sitting in a crowd right now, and yet you feel absolutely alone and isolated. I know that there are some of you here today that have been struggling with with anxiety and an anxiousness that plagues you like a mental prison. There are some of you who come in and it's hard for you to get through a day without crying. Because that's the world we live in. 
And so we've got to come to a new plane, a new understanding that we are not alone. Let me tell you something. If Jesus didn't mean what he said when he said, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, if that is not actually true, then we are actually silly in even being here today. The availability of the living Christ by his spirit to the church, to you and I, is the cornerstone of what it means to be a Christian. Christ in you, the hope of glory. A God who is with us and for us. I look at the despair in the age. And when we forget that God is with us, that forces us to draw our significance from what the world has to offer. But here's the terrifying thing. You see, I see this, this chase, this tangible chase that's before so many, and we all get sucked into it at times, is that we think that if we get to this place in life, then we will be happy. And you see, we're driven by one of the greatest lies that America ever produced was the pursuit of happiness. It's unbiblical. There's never a promise of happiness. I mean, the only time that happy is used is happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Happy are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It's kind of an upside down principle to happiness. Our happiness, given philosophically to our culture, is the right to, to move toward personal success, whatever that means. And here's the thing is that we look at the world and there are people that we watch, that we lift up and elevate to this supreme place in our lives. They're, they're almost like our, our cultural gods. Even as Christians, we're almost pantheistic at times in our, in our worship. For our worship is whatever captivates us the most. And we look at our stars, our athletes, and we look at these people that get all the way to the top of, of human achievement. Those who have achieved the praise of the masses. What did Andy Warhol, the the artists once say there would be a day when everyone would be famous for 15 minutes. We live in that day. Not the me generation, the look at me generation. And, and we, we look at the stars who have all that money can buy. And we think if I could get to where that guy is or that lady is, then I would be happy. And then we're struck with the horrible news that was so heart-wrenching. One of the stars that many of us have grown up with watching his films, a man like Robin Williams, who seemed to have everything that all of, most of us are trying to get to. And he gets it all and he says, it's, that's not it. And I don't have anywhere else to go. And so the only place left to go to escape this desperate place that I am in is death itself. And it wrecks us. And you know why it wrecks us? It's not because we care that much about him or his family. It's because it is a offense to what we are pursuing. It's like these people that climb a mountain and we're behind them and we're climbing up the mountain and, and there are these people that have gotten to the top and we're down here and we're exhausted and we're like, how did they get up there? And we're like, okay. And they're like, they've made it. And, and at least they're there that will get, inspire us to try to get to where they're at. And there they are. And it's like they get to the top of the mountain and, they, and they, they look over the edge and they're like, they yell back down to us. It actually sucks. 
it sucks up here. And then you just jump off. And then we're like, well, why am I on the mountain then? And I'm tired. And if I go down, there's nothing there. And if I go up, there's nothing there. We need something more significant to build our lives upon. You see, what this passage tells us is that whether you're in the lowest valley or you're on the highest mountain, God is available to you. What this tells you is that when you have Jesus, you'll actually find significance in the valley as well as the mountaintop. And honestly, the mountaintop experience, many of us are living our Christian lives hoping for the transfiguration. It only happened once for the disciples. Then they had to go back and live real life. We need Jesus to bring a divine significance to every moment, which means we need him with us. We need him with us. I, I think this is a significant aspect of the Christian life that is overlooked because we often forget that he is with us and available to us. The church, the true church, has always been a community who are around Jesus, who he sees all around himself. And I think that this is uh, this, this challenges uh, our self-sufficiency, but God is not compatible with our self-sufficiency. He's not. Finally, look at this. Look at, uh, look at this third facet of grace. Uh, in verses 13 through 16, it says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. Once again, theologians have taken this passage and said, this defines God's omnipotence. Once again, not an extremely useful word for us as modern people. But what this means, if it means anything, if I can have this slide, it means that grace means I have the power to change. I have the power to change. And we're not talking Tony Robbins' power. We're, we're not talking your best life now. We're talking about legitimate grace spirit-infused transformation that gives you the ability to have a certain level of stick-to-itiveness in the Christian life. The ability to enter into what Eugene Peterson calls a long obedience in the same direction. Because we need that. That God's ability, because you may think, okay, that's great, Josh. Grace means that God cares about me. Grace means that I'm not alone, but I still don't know how to live. I still don't know how to find Jesus because you don't know what I'm going through. You don't know. I've been looking for work for months and I haven't found any. And I don't know how I'm going to pay my bills. You don't know what it means because I've achieved so much and I'm still not happy. So how is it that I am supposed to come to a place in which I can experience God's presence and that, that knowledge of his love for me? What does that mean? Because honestly, I still feel separated. I'm not sensing his presence. And the key is to understand that his grace is revealed in his power to create anew. It says, if anyone be in Christ, all things new. Not all things are new. It's stated even more powerfully. All things new. 
And what Jesus does when we begin to, to turn to him and say, Lord, I believe that you love me and I believe that you are with me, but I need your spirit to actually help me live in a constant state of that knowledge. Let me give you guys an incredibly personal and, and in many ways painful but extremely life-changing way that I learned this great truth. And I called this message Intersections of Grace because it was derived from this experience exactly a year ago. A man in my church who was one of my dearest friends, I worked out with him all the time, him and his wife, the two amazing pediatricians in Portland, they both came to faith at Door of Hope the first month that the church started. And I became close friends with them. We were close in age. They have three girls uh, uh, who are 14, 12, and 9. Six months after Craig came to faith, he went into a seizure on New Year's Eve of 2010. And it was discovered that he had a golf ball-sized tumor in his brain. They removed the tumor, but with that kind of tumor, they give a one- to two-year life expectancy. The tumor was removed, but when I go to visit Craig and he comes out of his coma, what's the first thing he, he does? He makes some joke at me when I walked in because I used to look like a good, Anglo, a good Anglo Jesus. I had hair down to here and a beard down to here, which is possibly the reason the church grew. Um, and, uh, and in fact, he called me Jesus or something when I walked in and he's like, and the nurse walked in, and, and Craig is so excited to know Jesus, and he's laying under, under this reality that death is coming, and there is no escaping it. And the nurse walks in, and Craig says with a smile, he's like, hey, this is my pastor. His name's Josh. He looks like Jesus. You need Jesus, and I want him to tell you about him right now. And I'm like, wow, that was really awkward, Craig. She looks like she's really prepared to hear from me right now about Jesus. Thank you so much for that. But the thing is, is that he said it. He's like, he could say that because he's dying. And for a man with the ability to have a smile on his face and, and joy in his heart, to be able to look at this woman, and it was so obvious, she wasn't even offended because she could tell that his deep concern was what would be best for her. He, looked, he wasn't concerned about himself anymore because he knew his time was short, but that people are perishing and hurting and broken. And he remembered what life was like as a successful doctor, but without Christ, and it wasn't worth it again. And I watched Craig fight and battle and survive cancer for four years until last summer it claimed his life. And I received a call in July, last summer, and I was I, from Craig... He could barely talk on the phone. His wife put the phone up to his ear. He was in ICU in Indianapolis. His family's from Indianapolis. They were on vacation, and he had another seizure, and they had already removed the tumor twice, so his brain could not handle any more surgery. And, and they found that the tumor had, had grown on the other side now, and they were giving him approximately four to five weeks to live. And he was crying. And he could I could barely understand because he could barely talk because his body was so weak, and he just said, I got in broken sentences, Josh, I'm scared. I need you. I, uh, I escorted 
his two oldest daughters the next day. And they're really sweet. Their mom's Chinese. And so, and they're like, they're just really bright and really quiet, shy girls. So I've, next, I've been around them a bunch, but I don't know them very well. And they found out that I, their pastor was going to have to escort them to Indianapolis. And they were like, that is awkward. <laughs> and so I tried to make the flight as awkward as possible for them, just obnoxiously. It was really amazing. And we get to the hospital, and I brought my guitar. And I get to Craig's bedside, and he was just so happy to see me and, we, and, and his girls. And, they, and I stood in the corner while I watched him and Catherine tell their girls that he was going to die. I felt like I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't be watching this. And I realized that just as I was thinking it, I realized that I was watching a sacred moment. I was watching a sacred moment. You see, we've been praying for the big, the mountaintop. Jesus, show your power and your authority and heal our friend. He's so young. You shouldn't take him. He has so much vibrancy. He, he brings people to the Lord. He, he cares about Jesus. He's got little girls he's never going to see graduate or, or he's never going to walk down the aisle. He can't sleep in the same bed with his wife anymore because he, he has to be changed because he can't even get out of bed. This isn't right. You need to heal him. And in that moment, Jesus quieted my soul and my, my grumblings and said, you don't understand grace. That's and Craig, when they were done crying, he goes, Josh, play me some songs. I'd play songs for him all day in the hospital and, and, and he would end the song and he'd go, that was awesome. And Craig showed me in those days in the hospital and then the days to follow, because I drove his girls home from Indianapolis in the car so they could fly Craig back to Portland, which is awesome, by the way. I got pulled over twice um, in uh, Nebraska and in, at three in the morning because I had to get back to preach on Sunday. So I drove across the U.S. in two days without sleeping. And I get pulled over in Nebraska, and I've got three Asian girls in the car with me. <laughs> and I don't know if you can tell from where you're sitting, but I am covered in tattoos, and I was wearing a tank top, and I looked haggard. And the officer is like, you're going 85 and a 70. And I'm like, I'm so sorry, officer. i got to get home. These girls, their dad's dying. And he just thought I was making it up. And then he turns to Chelsea in the front seat. He's like, is this true, ma'am? And she looked at him, and she's so shy. She goes, huh? And I was like, what, what are you doing? Is this true what this man's saying? And she's like, uh, 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 yeah. I mean, you just said that so guilty. <laughs> and, then, and then he's like, give me your license. And he went back to the car. And I'm like, Chelsea, seriously, do I look like your daddy? I do not look like your daddy. They think I kidnapped you. It was amazing. And the officer, the Lord covered us and let me off. But we, <laughs> we, get, we get back. We get back to, to Portland, and Craig gets back, and man, just this time where, like, I, I watched these moments where it was incredible. It's like, this guy, can you imagine being so sick that you can't even wash your own body, and you have to be humiliated and stripped naked in front of nurses and rolled over on your side? I watched Craig, I watched, first of all, two people, this beautiful, this beautiful, just the warmest, extremely southern black woman nurse come in and she just she sang gospel songs over craig while she's bathing him and craig i would have been like humiliated my pride would have been like no you can't see me naked 
Uh, and, and Craig just made jokes, and they were laughing while she's bathing him. And then he just turns his head over his shoulder, and he goes, you are so funny. He, he comes home. It's like we, we say, oh, well, why won't you heal him, God? His dad comes to faith that night. His relationship with his mother's reconciled. The testimony of Craig's four years of faith uh, radically challenged our church and, the, and, and brought us to a place of repentance that a man who had only been a believer for four years could live so boldly for Jesus. So we say, is that grace, that suffering? That's an intersection of grace. That is God's ability by his power to transform what we would consider to be awful things. Cancer's awful. It's awful. It's ugly. But Craig, though the outward man was perishing, the inward man was being daily renewed. And there was real grace moments like I have never experienced. This is grace. It's the power to live differently. And so the question that I have for you then is how should we respond to it? And we're going to move to this quickly because I've taken a ton of time. Grace means I'm known. Grace means I'm not alone. Grace means I have the power to live differently. It comes it comes through our willingness to present ourselves to Jesus and say, Jesus, infuse every moment of every day with divine significance. And how do I know if I'm living in grace? First, 17 and 18. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. The first response that we should have to grace is this. If you could put it up there, grace means I am never, look at that. Dirty word in my house. I am never bored. Boredom is the sign of, of devaluing the importance of every moment. And what David says is, I understand that you're with me, that you know me, that you are changing me, and because of that, I am stinking amazed. My life is filled with wonder, whether it is in the valley, hand, spending time with a friend who is dying, or on the, on the mountaintop rejoicing over the victories of our children. I am amazed in either place because I have a different foundation than what the world offers. That foundation is Christ, his grace, his goodness, that God is not content to live without us. It's what I call receiving a sacramental cast. It's the ability to see the divine significance in every situation. It requires from us that what Brother Lawrence, that, that humble monk who wrote that little slim volume, the only mystical book I think is actually helpful, called Practicing the Presence of God. Here's a crippled monk who washed dishes in a monastery who lived every moment with total joy because he recognized Jesus was with, with him and he was amazed. And so when he washed dishes, he did it unto the Lord and he found great joy in it. Grace means I'm never bored. Are you bored? Are you bored with your faith? Do you think the scriptures are boring? Do you think your church community is boring? Or are you struck with wonder and amazement? It is this, this is a litmus test on whether we understand grace. Grace means I'm not divided. Look at verses 19 through 21, not 22. So here's the verses that really people were like, why is this in the psalm? Oh, that you would slay the wicked. Like, what just happened? 
Oh God, oh men of blood, depart from me. You notice that it just went from like some beautiful power ballad from the 70s. I mean, it reads like a bread song. And now all of a sudden, it's like it just turned into Metallica. Uh, and it's like, they speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. <laughs> so funny. I count them my enemies. And we're like, well, Josh, what are, how are you going to draw any significance and grace out of this text um, without doing scripture torture? Uh, no, you don't have to do scripture torture here. First of all, let me just say that for those passages in the Psalms where David's like praising God and the next one he's like, dash my enemies' babies' heads against rocks. And you're like, that's disgusting and extremely disturbing. <laughs> Why is that in the Bible? And the reason it's there is that you have to look at how David lived and what he prayed. Because David understood something that we need to learn to understand because if Detroit truly needs an anger management class, Maybe we can learn quite a bit from this verse, and that is the only safe place to take your anger is to God, not to the person you're angry with. Because David's enemy, his number one enemy was who? Saul. Was David willing to do anything to Saul? Not a hair. Not a hair. Wouldn't touch him. But he clearly was really mad at him in private. <laughs> But what it reveals about grace for us, an attitude of grace, is that grace means I'm not divided. What it means, it shows David's utter and absolute loyalty to Yahweh, is that I will live for him alone. And see, this is challenging for us because we're divided in everything we do. We are constantly trying to live with one foot in, in, in heavenly realities and one foot firmly planted in the world. And we don't want to let go of either. It's like, I, I don't want to go to hell but I really want to achieve these things. And maybe we could come together, Lord, and co-plan these things. Jesus is not interested in a divided heart. In fact, he can do nothing with it. He can only work with broken material. And so we, we look at this, this, this passage and we see a loyalty that is just powerful. It's a, it's a willingness, as Paul writes to Timothy, to take hold of the eternal life which we were called to take hold of it, to fight the good fight, to say, Jesus, you will hold the supreme place in my existence because only then will all my other interests take their proper place. How divided we are. And it's what brings a horrible and shallow witness to our gospel and to our king and to our communities because people come in here hurting and they are looking first to you to see the evidence of Jesus. And if Jesus reflected anything, it was a single-minded focus upon pleasing the Father. That is the outcome of grace. You aren't going to be motivated to live an undivided life by guilt, by trying to please a God whose affections you already have and just aren't aware of it. The gospel isn't working toward God's favor, it's working from it. Grace means finally, and here we close, verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Grace means I am not my own. Key to the Christian life has always been wrapped up in one word. I always say that we as Christians only can do really one thing, 
And that's submit. Surrender. What some have called the good death. We must die if we want to live. Search me and God of all the things David could have asked. And what he wants God to do is to show him his own heart, the areas that are wrong, the areas that are right. What you notice is, is an attitude that I always encourage my church toward. God is not just interested in your good parts. He doesn't want pieces of you. In your surrender, he doesn't just want, Lord, I'm gonna, I, I need to stop smoking, so I'm going to give you my smoking. He's not interested in getting pieces and parts of you. He's interested in the whole you, the good and the bad. Whenever I preach, I always begin by praying in a back room. I say, Lord, I give myself to you, my brokenness, my wholeness. I give you my glitches as well as my gifts. I give you my deficits and I give you my energy. I give you my scatteredness. I give you my focus. Now you make sense of it for the people because that's just stressed me out now that I prayed it. <laughs> Jesus stepped into our midst and he identified himself with us, but he did it by doing the exact opposite of what we do. He did it by refusing to live in independence, but lived on earth in entire dependence upon the Heavenly Father. We need a declaration of dependence, not independence. I close with this quote from one of my favorite theologians, Karl Barth. <laughs> I love it. Barth, who was the Einstein of theology in the 20th century, who wrote 15 million words, was asked what the most important thing that he learned in all his learning at the end of his life. And he said, with, a, with that charming smile of his, he said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That was the conclusion he came to after writing 15 million words. <laughs> and he said this about our faith, our surrender. He says, faith, it is the truth of our existence founded on and discovered in Jesus Christ. So what does it mean? That I depend on God's words. That my focus, my center of gravity, my support lies not in me but in him. That I let myself be nourished, enlightened, and ruled by him. That I grant him his right over me, over my pride, and also over my humility. Over my confidence and also over my insecurity. Over my stupidity and also over my wisdom. This is faith that I let Jesus Christ be for me what I am not and cannot be for myself. Grace means I am known. Grace means I am not alone. Grace means I have the power to change. Grace means I am never bored, but I'm filled with wonder. Grace means I am not divided, but I am loyal to my Savior. And grace means surrender. I lay my life down at your feet, Jesus. Only you can make sense out of the mess that is me. Only he can make sense out of the mess that is us. For you are a community together, called to encourage one another to grow in an understanding of the name of your very church. May you live up to the name you've been given. That through you, 
this divided city would find reconciliation. For Carl Perkins once said, it takes a reconciled people to bring reconciliation to a broken place. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for the gift of the gospel and its power to transform our lives. And Lord, I don't know about my brothers and sisters here, but even when I preach this message, I am convicted by my own neglect of such a great salvation, my own forgetfulness when it comes to your grace, which is so abundantly available. For Jesus, you have called us a royal priesthood. And the priests were told that they had no inheritance in the land, for the Lord their God was their inheritance. And Jesus, may we see ourselves as a royal priesthood, and that the greatest gift you give is yourself. Forgive us for looking for the wrong things to bring satisfaction to our, to our nervous souls. Forgive us, Lord, for our forgetfulness, our forgetfulness and our inability to remember that which is so readily available. Lord, we seem to look everywhere but up. Help us to look out and up, up to you to see your love and your power. We give ourselves to you. We present ourselves to you a living sacrifice. And we know, Lord, this is our logical worship. We look out and we pray, Lord, you'd give us your eyes to see our community, our city, our neighborhoods, our families, the way that you see them. And Lord, I pray that as we understand your grace, that we would begin to love one another toward the truth of what we can be in you. And so, Lord, I pray for this place right now because I know there are some here today who have just simply not been experiencing your presence, who have believed the lie that the enemy planted in our first parents, that, God, you are disinterested, that you are angry, that you're that you're detached, that when we blow it, you're ready to spank us, Lord. We know that your correction comes, but even that comes out of your tremendous love. We know your wrath is real, but we know that your wrath is simply your love violated. And Jesus, I pray that those lies of the enemy would be torn away from minds right now in this place, and that those who need to know that you care about them, you would reveal that truth. And for those who feel alone, I pray that you would show that you are here. Holy Spirit, come in power into this community. Make your presence known. Forgive us for not looking for you. And Lord, empower us from the inside out. Transform us, not through heart restoration, but through heart replacement. For your word promises, I will give, remove their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh, your heart. Lord, amaze us. Help us to be loyal. Forgive us for being divided. Lord, we surrender to you. We are not our own. If you're here today and you just need Jesus to touch you, maybe you know him, but you, you have forgotten what it's like to be in communion with him. If you're bored with your faith, with your, with your time in the word, you're disinterested in your community, you feel disconnected, God seems like a distant memory, I would encourage you 
today is the day of salvation. Repentance is a daily act for the Christian life. It's a return. It's a change of direction. I was living this way. Now I will live this way. It's a change of mind about who's going to be God in your life because the greatest tyrant you will ever know is yourself. And we make horrible masters, friends. If you need Jesus, who is the only master that can set us free, whether you know him or don't know him, if you have forgotten him and you are living on a subpar level of what God would have for you, I want to ask you to stand up where you're at right now so I can pray for you. If that's you, just stand up right where you're at. You need to know that Jesus is for you, not against you. You know that you're not giving him your whole person, that he is often compartmentalized to your church experience. He's not infusing every moment with divine significance because you're not allowing him to. If you're not surrendered and you're still clinging to dreams that continue to break your heart because you haven't discovered that the answer to your dream is not a dream at all, but it's a reality, Christ himself, stand up. The reason I ask you to stand is because we are flesh and blood as well as soul and spirit. And I know God is drawing hearts, but for every inward move, there must be an outward, an outward expression of that inward move. This isn't for me. I'm not your pastor. I go home. This is for you and Jesus. It's for this community. Because Jesus hasn't just simply called you to trust him as your savior. If he's your savior, he is your Lord. And you should live like it. Because that is the source of joy in every situation. If you're anxious today, if you're lonely, if you're depressed, let Jesus infuse your life with meaning. It doesn't mean that he'll necessarily eradicate your pain, but he does promise to be with you in the midst of it and make it meaningful for your growth and for the growth of those around you. People ask me, what does it cost to follow Jesus? Friends, it costs everything. It costs everything because our everything is nothing compared to his eternity. Let him infuse you. Let him infuse you. For all of you who stood today, I'd probably be standing if I wasn't already standing. <laughs> Let me pray. Just a prayer of blessing over you. Jesus, all of these hearts represent hearts that are saying, Lord, I, I'm putting a line of demarcation. I was living one way, maybe selfishly, maybe confused, maybe lost. But Jesus, you're the one who says that you come to seek that which is lost. Maybe there are people who stood today that don't know you at all, and all your scripture says is that whoever believes that Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead and believes in their heart this reality, confesses with their lips that Jesus is Lord, which means in those three words, the whole gospel, Jesus is Lord, is wrapped up in the whole gospel because it says, Jesus, your Lord, which means I am not. Jesus, your Lord, which means only you can bring value and meaning to my life and make everything else make sense. I pray your Lordship, Jesus, over this community, that they might be the freest people and might make you so attractive to a city that is hurting. I pray 
for healing in their own hearts and revival within the context of this community, that it would spread throughout all of the, the surrounding area, that Grace Community would be a catalyst for grace in this place. And so we say together as a community, as brothers and sisters, Jesus is Lord. And I want you to say that with me out loud right now. Jesus is Lord. Say it again with me. Jesus is Lord. Jesus, you are Lord. We love you only because you first loved us. It's in your name we pray. And all God's people said? Amen. Amen. Cool. Well, Praise the Lord. Well, why don't I thank Josh for coming? Man, what a blessing. I mean, uh, I've heard both services and I, I gleaned a whole lot. And uh, it's been a pleasure to, to know you. Uh, if you do need prayer, uh, there will be some, some folks praying at the end of service. And uh, why don't we just pray for, for Josh. Stand up with me, if you mind, and stretch your hand toward him and what God's doing at Door Hope. Tony, why don't you come up here with me? I think Harvey Carey was right that you do have a prophetic voice for a generation. God, we just thank you for Josh. We thank you, Lord, for his family. We thank you, God, uh, for your move in his life. And God, we pray that you would do immeasurably more than he can ever ask, think, or imagine that you would blow his mind with your favor and your goodness, God. God, I thank you that his voice goes out like fire. I thank you for the prophetic voice that's ushered by your spirit. God, may all of Portland be changed. God, would you cause a revolution because of his revelation? God, we thank you for it right now in the name of Jesus. And the people of God say, amen. God bless you. Have a super Sunday.